All right, this class is for parents of confirmants. And the church chooses, kind of when our kids are in sixth grade, um, that this is the time when they're moving from childhood to teenage years and adulthood. This is the time when they should really um, step forward and take on for themselves the vows that you made for them when they were baptized. And this is a really significant moment. And, you know, I think as parents we need to really appreciate the significance of what of this commitment they're making to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We need to really appreciate that, the significance of that commitment. And we need to appreciate the significance of the opportunity that we have before us as parents. Um, because we can, this is a time, if you really haven't already kind of developed this in your family, this is a time when you can really, you've got um, their course curriculum that you can come into and start having conversations with them. Um, and I think that is particularly important before they hit the turbulent years um, of teenagers, particularly 13, 14, 15-year-olds. So this is a real opportunity before us, and we really have an opportunity to, to equip and teach our children for life. And I said this last week, and I really meant it. I really wish my father... Um, and I say my father because my mother died when I was young, so it was just me and my father. I really wish my father had come alongside me and explained to me the Christian faith when I was in sixth grade. You know, kind of to piggyback on what I said last week, I wish he had said, Jane, let me tell you what went wrong in the fall and why you have this deep hunger inside you, this hunger to belong, to fit in, to have significance, to, to have approval, to belong. I, why you have this deep hunger in your soul. Um, and that everybody else, no matter how put together they look, has that same hunger. That would have helped me so much going into seventh grade and eighth grade. I wouldn't have felt like I was the only one who felt insecure, that I was the only one that had this unease within myself. Um, that really would have helped me make sense of what was going on inside me and what was going on in, outside in the world. And I will say, we're all parents. We're the front lines in terms of the education of our children. The church is here to support us, but it's really our responsibility to teach our children. And I really wish my father had done that. And today we're going to be really talking about the gospel and grace. And again, I wish my father had taken the time to really explain it to me. Because I kind of went into confirmation with an, a really kind of strange idea about Christianity. To me, it was kind of a combination of civics, of morals, and of good manners. And that's kind of what I thought Christianity is what you do. And I did not understand Jesus Christ and the atoning work on the cross. So that's kind of where I came from. As parents, my husband and I, were, were, we were learning our faith right alongside our children. I mean, we were sometimes on the same page as them. We might have been one page ahead, but we weren't any further than that. 
but I wish we had. I wish we had known more as parents. We didn't, but God used us where we were, and that was, that was a really, for us, a good thing to kind of grow in faith alongside our children. And we have four children, and, you know, so that we, we kind of, their questions were what really made us dive into Scripture and figure out what it is that Scripture says and what we believe. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to be in, and you've got um, copies of the Scriptures in, in front of you. We're going to be looking at a passage in John 8, and then move to Romans 8. And this passage from Romans 8 is part of your children's homework in a couple of weeks, so you're getting a little bit of an advanced um, look at that. Um, and, but before we get into the scriptures, I want to watch a quick clip from Les Mis. And it's probably the most famous scene that's associated with grace. Um, it's probably the most famous video um, or movie clip that's associated with grace um, and the power that grace has to, to transform our lives. And this is a scene between Jean Valjean, the police or the law, and a bishop. And just a little bit of background, Jean Valjean has been released from prison. No one will give him any lodging. Nobody will give him any work. And he is very bitter. He is starving. And um, he finds himself in the middle of the night. He's been, every door has shut, even the dog's kennel, where he tried to seek refuge. The dog came out and drove him away as if he were a man. Um, Jean Valjean finds him taken in, taken him, he's taken in by a Catholic bishop. And he's given a warm meal and a place to sleep. Yet in the middle of the night, in an act of kind of, it's kind of desperation, you almost feel like he's kind of half crazed, a lot of anger, he goes in and he steals the bishop's silverware. Then he's caught by the local authorities and brought back. And yet the bishop does, it receives him in a very unexpected way. And that's what we're going to hit right now. It's not very loud. As you can tell, we were struggling with the sound, so lean in. You ready? Yeah. Get in there! Pipe down! Oh, stay there! Oh. Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. There's some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness 
I have saved your soul for That is a beautiful thing. And, you know, you think about, we, we sang this hymn in church today. There's a wideness in God's mercy. That was kind of the closing hymn. And the, we sang these words, there's welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There's mercy with the Savior. There's healing in his blood. And that just, just to me, just when I was singing it, and as I knew this was, we were, were going to be looking at this, there is, there is a wideness in God's mercy. There's kindness for the sinner. And that's really what Victor Hugo captures in this scene between the bishop and Jean Valjean. Two interesting tidbits. One is when Jean Valjean wrote this scene, he got a lot of pushback because the Catholic priest was not really representative of the Catholic priest in France at the time. There was a lot of dishonesty and a lot of avarice and greed. But Victor Hugo said, this is not a bishop that I know, but this is a bishop that I would like to know, to, be, to have someone who receives a sinner with such compassion. And then the second thing is, if you, if you remember the book, because I don't think the play really or the movie captured this as well, when Jean, Val, Jean Valjean leaves, he does, this is not the moment of, tra- this is a building block to the point of transformation. But when he leaves, he goes out, and there's a little boy playing with some money. And the money, he loses one of his coins, and Jean Valjean steps on it. And he's kind of in a thicket. And the little boy starts arguing with him to get the money. And Jean Valjean just yells at him and scares the boy. And he runs away. And then Jean Valjean looks at the coin and he falls to his knees and just, what a wretch am I. And it's a real moment of repentance and transformation. So this experience of grace and mercy where his thievery was met with compassion and the opposite of what you would expect and then this encounter with this young boy where he hits his knees and he realize, really realizes what a wretch am I and he, his life the whole rest of the book or the movie or the play is the working out of this transformation in his life life that goes on to transform other lives and it's just a beautiful story and I think it's really good with our children to like last week we looked at a clip from the new from the PBS NewsHour you know so we can use current events in the newspaper we can use films we can use stories to link to scripture and to link to spiritual um, discussions with our children I think that really works well you know, even if you're watching something on television, if you, can, if you start looking at it with a, a lens of the gospel, you can all, there are all sorts of connections you can make with your children. And I think that's really helpful. So that's kind of what we're trying to do with this. So any thoughts are, are on this clip or anything I've said so far before we look at the scripture? 
I love how the bishop sings by the passion and the blood. God has raised you out of darkness. I mean, that by the passion and the blood. Um, all right, well, let's look at John 1, 8, verses 1 through 11. And this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I think it speaks to the same themes of grace that we have seen in the, in the scene from Les Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. So he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, it's a very public space, and people are gathered around him. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay, so here's this woman caught in the act of adultery, being brought into this crowded public scene at the temple. Because she was caught in the act, she may not be fully dressed. There were probably people in the crowd that she knew. I mean, this is, you know, this is Jerusalem. Can you imagine her shame, her humiliation, the horror of this moment for this woman? Then her accusers continue. Um, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, a little background. Adultery is a capital offense, and Moses did say people caught in adultery could be stoned. Um, But to be convicted, the couple had to be caught in the act, which is what this text is saying, and they were both punished equally. And if circumstances suggested that the woman had not consented, then only the man would be brought forward. So here they're only bringing the woman forward, which is not kosher, according to the law. And then Jesus does the strangest thing. He bends down and he writes with his finger on the ground. And they continue to ask him. So there's all this noise. Here's here's this woman standing here. Here's Jesus on the ground, writing with his finger. There's all this noise. And then he stands up, and he says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends back down and writes on the ground. So kind of what's going on, and Jesus is going back to the law of Moses that these accusers have brought up. And in the cases of stoning, um, there had to be at least two witnesses of the sin who had not participated in it, um, and they would be the first ones to throw the stones, these two witnesses. But when, and when Jesus says without sin, he doesn't mean they needed to be sinless, but they needed to, the, the law didn't require that but they needed to be innocent of this particular sin. And they needed to have, they needed to be free of complicity of prearranging this woman's adultery. So he said, you know, whoever's without sin, meaning either you're not an adulterer yourself or you haven't had any hand in making this event happen, you be the first ones to throw the stones. And then he's back riding on the ground. 
So whatever he wrote on the ground and this one statement had a great effect on these men who have brought this woman forward. Because then we read, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And you can almost see the scene with the woman standing there, the Jesus on the ground, these men around her, maybe with stones in their hands, kind of quieting down and turning around and walking off. And Jesus is left alone with just this woman. And then Jesus looks up and says to her, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. And I love that. Where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Can you imagine how you'd feel if you were that woman? I mean, one minute you're standing there, kind of your life in shame laid bare in a very public way, and you are guilty, and you're facing certain death and deserving it. And then all of a sudden, you're set free. You know, that is kind of like Jean Valjean. That is a life-transforming moment. But I want to make this point, and that is that Jesus is not easy on sin. He's not given her a pass. The ultimate reason Jesus could exempt her from condemnation is by the passion and the blood. He will take her condemnation on himself and die in her place. And that's the gospel. It's Jesus dying in our place, taking on our punishment, and we go out free and pardoned, just like this woman, just like Jean Valjean. And now I want to kind of jump to Romans 8. First, are there any questions on that? Does that make sense? They are learning, not today, but in about two weeks, they will have this passage from Romans 8 that we're looking at right now. And they also will have the passage we looked at last week, which is Genesis 3. So this Romans 8 passage is great. Um, And I'm going to start with the first verse in Romans 8. Their homework is actually going to start on the 31st verse. Um, But the first verse in Romans 8 is, There is... Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just to unpack this just a bit, when the word condemnation means, in this text, means ultimate condemnation for sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have absolution, acquittal, and pardon. And just to quote Alan Ross, who's, I don't know if y'all know him. He's a professor at Beeson, also is a um, parishioner here. He says, no condemnation is salvific. If people are in Christ, that is, true believers, identified with Christ by faith, there is no condemnation for them. God cannot condemn and will not condemn those who are in Christ. 
because he condemned Christ on their behalf. So Christ is taking on the punishment for this woman caught in adultery. Christ is taking on our punishment. And there is no condemnation for us. Um, and then I'm going to skip down to the 31st verse. And this is the section what, that your children are going to be looking at. And it's really a series of fabulous questions if you really look at it. Um, verse 31. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, no one is against us. And this is the, the key to the believer's security is that God is with us. What he has done for us through his son in the past, what he is doing for us through the spirit in the presence, in the present, should give us confidence that he will complete his work of salvation by glorifying us in the future. But we have confidence for what he has done through his son in the past. And nothing or nobody can stand in his way. So if God is for us, who's against us? And then he goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things in him? Now, he didn't spare his only son, but he gave him up for us. So won't he give us all things? And you kind of see the logic that, that Paul is tracing in this. And I think, he, you know, it says he didn't spare his only son, his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, it costs God dearly to act, if you really think about this. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a passage from Philippians, which I love. If you think, you know, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, he's, he's, he's with the Father. And then he empties himself. And he takes on the form of a servant. And he's born in our likeness. He comes into the world. And he does that to live for us and to die for us and to offer himself as a sacrifice for our salvation. So, yeah, it costs God dearly to act. And when we really slow down and really consider what God has done for us, it humbles us, it staggers us, and it changes us. And then he goes on in the next verse, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring up a charge? It's God who justifies. Who's to, who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us? So who's going to bring any charge against this woman caught in adultery? Who's going to bring any charge against us? God's not. It's God who justifies. Jesus Christ isn't. He, he was raised from the dead, is at the right hand of God, and he's <coughs> interceding for us. So who's going to bring any charge? No one. 
you know, since sin, all sin is against God. Only God can bring the charge. And God's already paid for those sins in Christ Jesus. And no one will condemn. Christ Jesus is the only one who can condemn, but he died and secured the removal of guilt and sin. And he rose from the dead to give life to those who trust in him. And he's exalted in heaven as our advocate. And he intercedes for us at the throne of grace. So there is indeed no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the next question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's almost, this Romans passage just builds to the crescendo. And it ends with these, you know, this wonderful sentiment that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what good news that is. You know, when Jesus asks this woman caught in adultery, has no one condemned you? Jesus is the only one that that can condemn her. Satan can't condemn her. The other people can't condemn her. Her own heart can't condemn her. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is her advocate and also her substitute. He takes her place and goes off to be condemned on the cross. And she takes his identity and goes off as God sees her as Christ Jesus. And when our children are saying, when they're confirmed, that we accept you as our Lord and Savior, that's what they're saying, that you're going to take my place on the cross and I'm going to be, I get your righteousness. And that's where our salvation comes from.